0: This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org.
1: Hello and welcome to the How We Got Here podcast. Here we are, a year later and four seasons under our belt. I cannot believe it. Guys, absolutely amazing. Thank you so much to all of our loyal listeners for not only subscribing, but writing reviews and spreading the word. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa. I'm an investigative reporter at the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. I also work for Investigate TV, but my heart is really with this podcast. I love it. If this is your first time with us, don't worry. You can go back and listen to the first three seasons at any time. This is a history podcast, but we like to think we make it fun. Together with my partners in crime, Colton Weekly and Kate Albright, we tell you about Virginia's rich history one week at a time. And if you're not a Virginian, no worries. Most of our stories will engage and inspire you. We are turning back the clock on the week of October 5th through the
0: 11th. Throughout the history of slavery, enslaved people wanted their freedom. That's a very natural impulse and and indeed a universal one. Freedom is something
1: that many of us take for granted. The path to liberty and freedom for enslaved people winds through centuries in North America, full of horrors that were once commonplace, though today they are difficult to comprehend. As much as the white men in power worked to degrade the black men, women, and children they saw as property, what many feared most was a revolt, enslaved people using their far greater numbers to their advantage to rid themselves of chains once and for all. The ugly history of slavery in Virginia is still being reconciled today. Those who fought for freedom and failed, now getting the recognition they rightfully deserve. And that brings us to October 10, 1800, A man named Gabriel is put to death at the Richmond Gallows for an uprising that included a plan to kidnap Virginia's governor and hold him hostage until enslaved people were granted their freedom. And for this story, we went back to our sponsors at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and the wonderful Dr. Karen Sherry. She's been with us through all four seasons now, and she's been willing to talk to us about the history around us, the good and
0: the bad. I'm happy to participate whenever I I feel I have enough expertise to do so. (laughs) It's a great partnership. I mean, we're so happy to be involved with the podcast so glad it's enjoying such success and you guys just keep booking more and more seasons. <laughs> There's more history to tell. <laughs> never, never a shortage of that, yeah.
1: Many of you may know Gabriel by a different name, Gabriel Prosser. But as we begin to better understand and come to terms with slavery, something that should have really happened long before now most historians have dropped Prosser because that was the name of the Henrico County family who owned Gabriel.
0: I think in probably the past 10, 15 years, there's been a movement to not assign the last names of the slaveholders to enslaved people.
1: Before we get to Gabriel's Rebellion, sometimes called Gabriel's Conspiracy, we asked Dr. Sherry what was known of Gabriel before his planned revolt immortalized his name in Virginia history.
0: What we do know about him, and and this is one of those maybe kind of poetic historical coincidences, he was born in 1776, the year of the Declaration of Independence that declared we take these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. He was held by the Prosser family is a very prominent, wealthy family in Henrico County. They had one of the largest slaveholding plantations in, in the county. They were like third or fourth largest slaveholders. Their plantation raised tobacco and wheat. Although Gabriel was trained as a blacksmith, that's a craft that he may have learned from his father, but that gave him a skill, a very valuable skill. So Gabriel would not have been working out in the fields of the plantation. Instead, he was hired out to do blacksmith work. That was a common system of hiring out enslaved labor to other people who needed laborers. So the Prossers might have sent Gabriel to a neighboring plantation, to a shop in Richmond or something, and the Prosser family would have collected essentially the wages or the value of Gabriel's labor.
1: Not only was Gabriel valuable for his skills as a blacksmith, he had other skills that set him apart from many other enslaved people in the late 1700s. Gabriel could read and write. Literacy would later become illegal for enslaved people.
0: It was usually fairly rare for enslaved people to be literate. Gabriel was remarkable for that as well.
1: His stature at the time is well-documented. It is said that Gabriel was a very
0: large man, well over six feet tall, perhaps rising as high as six foot three. He must have been a very imposing figure. Sure, he was well-muscled because of his work as a blacksmith by certain accounts that appear in the trial transcript. He was a natural-born leader and a fairly charismatic one as well.
1: Gabriel was around 24 years old when his plan started to take shape.
0: Plotting for it probably started in the spring of 1800, around April or so. There were some very soft initial whisperings. A slave revolt was in the works. And during that time, Gabriel, Two of his brothers who were also held by the Prosser family and other enslaved people whom they knew and came in contact with, they were meeting usually secretly or during slave burials or other get-togethers that often happened on Sundays. And they were planning a armed revolt to kill white people and basically bring an end to slavery.
1: Gabriel and his brothers worked to recruit as many men as they could, both free and enslaved, from all around
0: central Virginia. There were recruits all around Richmond and Petersburg and neighboring towns and possibly as far as Norfolk. The numbers of people involved in Gabriel's conspiracy really varies. Some recruiters claim there were about 500 men who agreed to participate. Others claim the numbers were as high as 10,000. It's difficult to know exactly how many men were involved, and there were probably a lot of enslaved men who were hedging their bets. They maybe said that they would participate. They would take up arms and participate in this armed raid on, on Richmond and beyond, but they were maybe going to wait to see if the plot actually started, how it went before they joined, simply because of the risk to themselves that they were involved. In planning for this insurrection and thinking about how well organized it was, we know that Gabriel and one of his brothers, who was also a blacksmith, they started fashioning weapons. They converted scythes into weapons. Other of the conspirators gathered whatever weapons they could. Some of them illegally got hold of guns. They were planning, they were trying to get organized, trying to get supplies to help ensure the success of their rebellion.
1: It's worth noting this plan probably wasn't conceived by Gabriel without any outside influence. Think about it. The American Revolution was fresh in people's minds, but not just here, around the world.
0: Public discourse was full of conversations and debates over the nature of liberty, about who should have it, about what it meant. It was happening internationally, and we see that in revolutions that were inspired by the American Revolution. We see in the French Revolution, which began in 1789, in the Haitian Revolution, which began in 1791. And indeed, Gabriel's conspiracy was also taking inspiration from those revolutions. It suggests that enslaved people had a certain amount of geopolitical knowledge about international affairs. In 1800, the Haitian Revolution was still going on, and that was a revolution that began as a slave insurrection. And when the revolution ended in 1804, it was a very bloody revolution, but when it ended, it established Haiti as an independent black republic, the first one in in the world. It also constituted the second time in which a Western colony gained its independence from the colonizer. The first time that happened was with the creation of the United States.
1: Gabriel's plan was elaborate and set to take place on August 30th, 1800.
0: What we do believe was planned was that there were going to be several groups, several units of men They were going to march into Richmond. The first group was going to go to the southern part of the city near the James and set fires. Fires which would draw the authorities and draw attention, efforts to to put out the fires to the southern part of the city. And then other units were going to descend upon the city. One unit was charged with going to the Capitol to kidnap Governor Monroe and take him hostage. Also to break into arsenals and gather as many weapons as they could. But that's not all they had in
1: mind. And this next part is why this revolt prompted so many of the enslaved people involved to be put to death.
0: All along the way, when these units encountered white families, they were planning to kill them. The plan was really to wreak havoc, gain control of the city, and then spread outwards.
1: Once the plan reached that point, Gabriel hoped enslaved people around the state would see his success and begin uprisings of their own. The day had arrived. Months of planning and preparation were on the line. The possibility of freedom on the horizon. And then, mother nature played a part.
0: On August 30th of 1800, there were terrible storms around the Richmond area. It washed out some roads, it made crossing various creeks and other waterways impossible. So the plan was to delay the insurrection by a day.
1: Not only had Mother Nature gotten involved on August 30th, but Gabriel
0: was betrayed. This is a conspiracy that was foiled. And it was foiled in part because two enslaved men who had agreed to participate, they, they changed their mind and revealed the plot to their slaveholder on the day of the planned insurrection. They were two enslaved men named Pharaoh and Tom, and they were held by the Shepherd family. And for whatever reason, maybe they, they got scared. Since the 17th century, there had been rules on Virginia's books prohibiting slave insurrections. And so they knew if they were caught, they, they very likely faced a death sentence. So, you know, maybe that prospect scared them into revealing the plot. Maybe they also thought that they could curry favor by exposing this plot to the authorities. And so they told their slaveholder, Mosby Shepherd, who reported the conspiracy to the authorities. And that's what led to the activation of the militia and the bringing of guards into Richmond and so forth to put down the plot. We don't know for sure what their motivation is, but perhaps Pharaoh and Tom were motivated by the hope of some kind of reward.
1: More on the reward they did eventually receive later on. Meanwhile, the militia began rounding up everyone involved before any kind of attack took place. But Gabriel had managed to escape. Some 71 men were arrested and held while the search for Gabriel continued. In mid-September, with Gabriel still on the run, the trials for those arrested began. As you might imagine, these were no
0: ordinary trials by jury. In these days, any enslaved person who was arrested and taken to court was taken to this special, segregated court that was made up of five justices and no jury. So these five justices really determined the fate of the accused man. It should come as no surprise that all of these justices were white many of whom were probably also slaveholders so would not have been sympathetic to uh, slave rebellion.
1: Much of what we know about this plot comes from the trial transcripts within this court as the dozens of enslaved people learned their fate. And there's one moment in those transcripts from an unnamed defendant making a comparison so powerful it's hard to ignore and really resonates today.
0: I have nothing more to offer than what General Washington would have had to offer had he been taken by the British and put to trial. I have adventured my life in endeavoring to obtain the liberty of my countrymen and am a willing sacrifice in their cause. So this is a man who's likening himself to the rebellious acts of George Washington and and John Adams and the other patriots who fought in the American Revolution, which was considered treason by the British. Just like Americans
1: fought for their freedom from the British, these were Americans fighting for their freedom. Though it remained a mystery to authorities around Richmond at the time, We now know where Gabriel went, as his co-conspirators were on trial.
0: We do know that he boarded a schooner called the Mary, which took him to Norfolk, and he was kind of hiding out in Norfolk.
1: On September 23rd, another betrayal. Some say an enslaved crew member aboard the ship turned Gabriel into authorities. Though questions remain if any of the crew, including the ship's white captain, were part of the conspiracy to begin with.
0: The authorities did indeed question the white ship captain, although nothing ever came of that. They didn't end up prosecuting him for his involvement, whether witting or unwitting, in Gabriel's escape.
1: Nevertheless, Gabriel was brought back to Richmond for his trial, where he came face to face with the man he planned to kidnap, Virginia governor and future
0: U.S. president, James Monroe Monroe interviewed him directly and in his report Monroe said from what Gabriel said to me he seemed to have made up his mind to die and to have resolved to say but little on the subject of the conspiracy After the plot was foiled and the court cases began, Monroe, he does play an interesting role, certainly as as governor of a large and for white people very terrifying conspiracy that got exposed. And there was already great paranoia about slave violence, anti-white violence and and slave insurrection. And this just fueled those kinds of fears.
1: Of the 72 men put on trial, 26 were sentenced to death, while others were either sold to slaveholders outside of Virginia or pardoned. The sheer number of people ordered to hang concerned Governor Monroe.
0: He actually wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson asking his thoughts about how many men were being executed for a plot that never actually took place and that resulted in no deaths of white people. He and Jefferson conferred by letter and they expressed some concerns about the number of executions, fearing that at a certain point, and they never said you know, exactly what that point would be, what that number would be, but at a certain number of deaths, it would seem more like revenge than like justice. So Monroe was certainly concerned about public perceptions and perceptions beyond Virginia, nationally, perhaps even internationally as well, about what was going on.
1: The letters between the Virginia-born politicians did nothing to save Gabriel's life. On October 6th, within the span of that single day, he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death.
0: For Gabriel, he was willing to risk his life for his cause. Another interesting tidbit that comes out of the trial transcripts is that he reportedly acquired a piece of white silk and he was planning to write liberty or death on that piece of fabric and use it as a flag to, you know, inspire the troops. And of course, liberty or death is is the famous utterance of Patrick Henry in, in declaring patriot desire to break free from England. Gabriel. Denied
1: freedom in a country that had won its freedom through war in the same year of his birth, 1776. Planned to utilize one of the most famous phrases in American history in his own battle to escape from beneath those seeking to exploit him. But on October 10, 1800, Gabriel was brought to the Richmond gallows and hanged the area where it happened is modern-day east broad street where interstate 95 passes below a historical marker on the bridge often going unnoticed his death was due to those who betrayed him pharaoh and tom we told you they eventually received a reward for alerting their slaveholder of gabriel's plot It just so happened to be the very thing that Gabriel was seeking for enslaved people across the state.
0: After the executions of Gabriel and other conspirators, the General Assembly issued Pharaoh and Tom their freedom. If that was part of their motivation, it paid off for them. They did get their freedom.
1: Once news of Gabriel's plan spread, it was covered by the press all around the young nation most notably here in Virginia.
0: I think a typical example was a September article in the Virginia Herald, which is a Fredericksburg newspaper. The newspaper writer said, in a word, if we will keep a ferocious monster in our country, and that's his reference to Gabriel, calling him a ferocious monster. If we will keep a ferocious monster in our country, we must keep him in chains. That was kind of the attitude, that these men were were bloodthirsty monsters, they were out for violence, they needed to be enslaved and kept in bondage. Those
1: attitudes were not isolated to the press. As was the case with many uprisings, there was action from the General Assembly to try
0: and prevent further insurrections. Some of the new regulations they passed after Gabriel's conspiracy largely had to do with law enforcement. They empowered local magistrates to send out slave patrols. They created a new public guard for the capital to guard not just the governor, but also any arsenal of weapons that were stored at the capital. The state also distributed arms to militia units across the Commonwealth. And the actions of lawmakers weren't just aimed at
1: enslaved black people, but free blacks
0: as well. The General Assembly passed a regulation that required townships and cities to compile annual lists of free people of color in their jurisdiction, not only to list their names but also their addresses. As part of the paranoia about slave resistance, free people of color were regularly suspected by the white authorities of first and foremost just providing what they saw as a negative example to enslaved people, the example of freedom. The white authorities didn't want enslaved people to get any ideas about gaining their own freedom. Also, authorities were regularly worried about free people providing assistance to enslaved people and helping to, you know, plot insurrections and other forms of resistance.
1: It took more than 200 years before Gabriel's conviction was overturned.
0: In 2007, then Virginia Governor Tim Kaine issued a posthumous pardon for Gabriel and actually praised him for his, quote, devotion to the ideals of the American Revolution, end quote. So I think we today understand Gabriel more as someone who was embracing the revolutionary spirit of the age, a a desire for liberty, a love for freedom, and, and we can appreciate that. And that's not to suggest that we condone the planned violence or the planned killing, but we can certainly understand the motivations for the conspiracy.
1: A man named Gabriel born into slavery in the year the United States became free, sought that same freedom for himself and those like him. After being betrayed and convicted, he was hanged in Richmond on October 10, 1800. Gabriel planned to use the famous quote bellowed by Virginia's Patrick Henry as part of his plot. But instead of liberty, he was given death. Liberty for enslaved people like Gabriel wouldn't come for another 65 years.
0: This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov.
1: Virginia has a notorious history when it comes to the rights of the LGBTQ community. In 1610, the colony adopted the sodomy laws of England, making sex between two men a capital crime punishable by death. In the year after independence, 1777, Thomas Jefferson proposed a revision of a Virginia law to reduce the penalty for sodomy from death to castration. The proposal was shot down. Jump ahead nearly 200 years to the spring of 1969. Several bars in Richmond who served mostly gay and lesbian customers are closed because they violated the state's ABC law prohibiting the sale of alcohol to known homosexuals. Guys, this was only 51 years ago. The U.S. Supreme Court deemed these kind of laws unconstitutional in 1993, but those laws were still on the books in Virginia for another 20 years. And that brings us to October 6th, 2014. I now declare you, Nicole Priest, and you, Lindsay Oliver, wife and wife, the day same-sex marriage became legally recognized in the Commonwealth. They could file joint tax returns or transfer inheritance. Simply put, this ruling allows all Virginians to be full members of our society with all the rights and responsibilities that come with marriage.
0: Just overwhelmed with excitement. Our family is just as valid as every family.
1: Um, It's it's about love. But the path towards this legal recognition in Virginia was never easy. In 2004, the General Assembly passed a resolution to amend the state constitution, defining marriage as only between a man and a woman. It also made sure to prohibit any same-sex union from other states. So that means if a gay couple married in Massachusetts, the first state to legalize, and moved to Virginia, well, they wouldn't have the same rights as a married couple made up of a man and a woman. This amendment to the state constitution needed to be voted on by citizens of the Commonwealth. And on November 7th, 2006, 57% of voters voted in favor creating one of the most restrictive state constitutional amendments on same-sex marriage. But then, just seven years later, several same-sex couples sued the Commonwealth, arguing the state constitution violated their 14th Amendment, which says that no state shall make or enforce any laws that deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. One of those couples was from Chesterfield County. The next year, after an incredibly close election and recount, Democrat Mark Herring was sworn in as Virginia's attorney general in January. And after two weeks on the job, the state's highest attorney ruled Virginia's marriage amendment unconstitutional. And not only that, he said he would not defend the ban in court and would actually side with the plaintiffs to fight it. The lawsuit's first hurdle was federal court in Norfolk. It got postponed because of a snowstorm. Both sides arrived to court six days later to make their case. The plaintiffs stuck to that 14th Amendment argument while the defense countered that marriage is a traditional institution that celebrates the diversity of the sexes. On February 13, 2014, yes, the day before Valentine's Day. Judge Wright Allen released what became a landmark opinion, striking down the state's marriage laws. Same-sex couples weren't celebrating just yet. An appeal meant the ruling was on hold until a three-judge panel in Richmond's federal court could decide. At the end of July that year, in a two-to-one vote, the judges in Virginia's capital agreed with the lower court's ruling that Virginia's marriage ban was unconstitutional. Attorney General Mark Herring then asked the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case so no further legal challenges could hinder same-sex couples in Virginia. In August, a cliffhanger. People invested were holding their breath. The Supreme Court intervened blocking the marriages in Virginia for the time being. Here's why. The justices had to decide whether to take the case. If they did, these unions would have to wait months until their final decision. If they didn't take it, the marriages would be recognized immediately. This is a huge moment. When the nation's highest courts, new term began on October 6th, 2014, justices refused to hear the appeal, meaning the amendment to the state constitution was unconstitutional and the freedom to marry was granted to all same-sex couples in Virginia. The rights and privileges of marriage, which are guaranteed to us by the United States Constitution, are now available to all loving, committed couples in Virginia. The Chesterfield couple, whose suit helped get this underway, speechless. Now that we are legally married, (laughs) um, there aren't words to describe how that feels. The first same-sex couple to get married in Richmond didn't wait long. They tied the knot just a day later. I've known for 20-plus years that justice would come to Virginia. I didn't know it would be today, but I, I certainly have known that it would happen. Even though Virginia had finally allowed the legal rights of marriage to same-sex couples, the same was not true around the country. In November of that year, a federal court based in Ohio upheld gay marriage bans in four other states. But in January of 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to take that case to decide on the freedom of marriage. And in June, a moment Forever changing this country, the Supreme Court rules marriage is a fundamental right for same-sex couples, requiring all states to recognize their unions. (music) Marriage is often looked at as the pinnacle of love between two people, an everlasting bond forever linking the pair. But for same-sex couples in Virginia, the pinnacle was not legal. October 6, 2014, changed that. Beliefs on who should marry who were no longer up to the state or voters to decide. Judges declared, love rules supreme. When they did everything by the book that they should have done. Sometimes you do everything right and things still go wrong. And that's life. And I'm afraid that's what's happened here. It's not fair, it's not right, but it does happen.
2: And I would have gladly given my life for For any of them.
1: October 8th, 2001.
0: The divers tried to save each other, but the dawn revealed what everybody knew. It was too late.
1: Bodies were pulled from the mangrove swamp and laid on the dock. Best of friends had to identify the dead. 17 members of the Richmond Dive Club were killed when the 120-foot boat they were in, the Wave Dancer, capsized in Belize the wrath of a category four hurricane named Iris. Bringing 140 mile per hour winds, relentless rain, and a storm surge about 15 feet high, an unforgiving wall of water. When the storm actually hit, we have a satellite telephone on board
0: the boat, so we were able to talk to each other right, right through to the point where they got very busy.
1: And the next time I talked to Captain Jerry was, when the, uh, when the storm subsided, and, uh, and at that point, uh, we found out that the wave dancer was upside down. Only three of the 20 divers from our area on board survived.
0: I remember thinking, I'm not gonna die in this boat. I'm not gonna die in this boat. The second time was when I was swimming down the corridor trying to reach my way out, uh, and I got to a place where there, there was no air above me. Uh, the water either though I thought the water was filling the boat but I might have just been swimming down into a lower part of the boat and had to turn around and then swim back and I remember I'm not a terribly good breath hold diver and I remember thinking is this the way it's gonna end I then saw a light down the corridor which it turns out was Mary Lou with her flashlight Uh, and I heard voices and I swam to the light
1: Prior to the storm, hurricane warnings prompted evacuations in Belize City, about 80 miles north. We went back into our archives because former NBC12 anchor Gene Cox traveled to Belize in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, wondering why the Richmond residents tried to weather the storm on board the boat. upstream and being in what you thought was a safe harbor, I went to bed completely confident that the boat would be 100% safe. That is a recognized hurricane hole. It is the only safe anchorage between uh, the Rio Dulce River and Guatemala and the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, many vessels, including ours, have written out storms in that area in the past, very successfully. At the time, one local official even tried to say that the passengers and crew didn't want to get off the boat. People were very, very um, party mood and uh, not aware of what the hurricane was like. And they just refused to go up into the village. But that was proved to be false. Those I spoke with from both boats denied that report. They say they were not partying, that diving is such a rigorous activity it would be foolish to get drunk before diving. Also, they say, the shelter itself was not secure. Attempts to explain the loss of life spawned all sorts of theories. From a tornado picking up the 120-foot boat and flipping it over, to a beached tugboat being picked up from its earthen grave, Traveling across the Big Creek Channel and smashing into the wave dancer, knocking her free from the pier. Neither turned out to be true. Months later, an investigation revealed that the wave dancer wasn't properly tied to the pier. The boat was one of the last to arrive in what was supposed to be a safe haven, and part of the front of the wave dancer was jutting out from the edge of the concrete defenses. And when the wind and waves continued to get worse, the investigation found the wave dancer was tied too tight to the pier. The storm surge violently lifted the boat, and without enough give in the ropes, they snapped sending the wave dancer along the deadly wave that would flip it over in the water, killing 20 of the 28 people on board, 17 Americans and three crew members. I met
0: the survivors as they were preparing to leave Belize, they were still in shock. We swam into what had been the corridor. Uh, I went one way, he went the other way. I wound up in a blind alley
1: in another cabin that was completely filled with water, turned around, went back. Uh, got to where there was some air above me and got my head above water, saw a light,
0: swam for the light, and found the light was coming through the window that we had just been unsuccessful taping. Uh, the other passenger had kicked out the window and he was on the outside shouting my name. I did a surface dive, went out through the window, and a bunch of hands pulled me up into a lifeboat on the outside. I was the last one out. It
1: happened incredibly quickly and the three of us have talked about this. We don't know why we were able to survive except that Rick Patterson um, with a superhuman force was able to kick through the window of the emergency exit door which wouldn't open probably because of pressure and I was happened to be there. I had a small flashlight and this is the light that Dave was able to find.
2: This is the light. That is the light. saved your life. It saved
1: my life. A report from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, you know it as NOAA, cited a newspaper in Belize when talking about Hurricane Iris, saying, quote, Iris showed no mercy and proceeded to smash to smithereens everything in her path. Because of the death and destruction left behind, the name Iris was retired for hurricanes, never to be used again. Other members of the Richmond Dive Club, forced to come to terms with the fact that their friends wouldn't be coming home. These are very true friends to all of us in the club, and the ones that have passed away will be deeply, deeply missed. They love diving, we love diving, and they were really doing what they love to do in life. I mean, they were at their happiest when they were diving. I mean, we have our bad days, you know, diving and our great days, but they were doing what they love to do and nothing would ever keep them from that. October 8th, 2001. A group of Virginians traveled to Belize for a week-long getaway to dive and get up close and personal with the beauty down below. 17 of them would not survive when Mother Nature's beauty turned beast in the form of a Category 4 hurricane with a bullseye on the Big Creek Channel believed to be safe. Virginia was home to so many important politicians during the American Revolution that it's inevitable for some to be overlooked. Anyone you ask will be able to come up with Washington and Jefferson, their homes at Mount Vernon and Monticello. One revolutionary architect hailed from a place called Gunston Hall. Until his death there on October 7th, 1792, he was never done fighting for citizens' rights to protect them from potential corruption within the American government.
2: If we were to stop just about anybody on the street and ask that person, what is important to you about this country? What are the values that you associate with being American? We can trace just about anything someone says back to the ideas that George Mason wrote down in the Virginia Declaration of Rights. For me, George Mason's ideas are the bedrock of what we believe it means to be
1: American. George Mason's legacy extends to today. But before we get into his story, we have to tell you about our guest.
2: I'm Rebecca Martin, I'm the Director of Education and Guest Experiences at
1: George Mason's Gunston Hall. Rebecca has worked there for five years. She's in charge of everything that has to do with learning about Mason's life for Gunston Hall visitors.
2: We want people to understand Who was this guy? What made it possible for him to think the important thoughts that he did and to make the pretty phenomenal contributions that he did to our country? And what are the contradictions that are inherent in his
1: life and in his legacy? Before her work at Mason's plantation along the Potomac in Northern Virginia, the native of the Midwest got to spend a decade up close and personal with documents that have influenced our country for more than two centuries. Then I went to the National
2: Archives for 10 years, where I was with the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, among other super important documents, where now I'm at the home of one of the people who helped contribute to the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights.
1: So you were around the Constitution, the actual Constitution, the actual document. Every day. Pretty special,
2: right? It was amazing. There's nothing like being able to stand in front of the original signed Constitution of the United States all by oneself and spend as much time as a person wants just looking at that document. It's one of those things that it doesn't matter how many times I look at those documents I still get chills when I look at them. I I don't ever take it for granted. I've never they've never become blasé to me or just sort of Ugh, those documents.
1: And she says part of the original US Constitution is very indicative of George Mason's work. One of
2: the pieces of the Constitution that I think people most often overlook that I find really really meaningful is on the very last page, pretty close to the signatures. There's a word that's in pretty big letters. The document was written by a man named Jacob Chalice and he wrote it in pretty much the same size handwriting throughout, but you are probably familiar with we the people being extra big. And then the word article one and article two, those are also pretty big. And then there's one other word that's oversized compared to everything else, and that's the word done. Every time I look at that, I just think about how much went into creating this document. How much people gave up to be able to spend more than three months in Philadelphia working on it. How many arguments went into it. How much people poured their hearts and souls into it. And they certainly didn't think it was perfect in the end. There's ample documentation that they felt there was much that needed to be done still. And George Mason is, of course, one of the people who most advocated for improving the Constitution, even after it was completely written. But still that word, done, you can just feel in the way that it's oversized, how much relief there was that they finished this project. And for me, it's so symbolic of the effort that went into creating our founding document and the effort that went into creating our country.
1: Done. Sometimes we feel that way after we finish a very long episode of how we got here. Ugh, one of Colton's bad jokes, not mine. But that's a far cry from, you know, writing a document dealing with the rights of people living within a brand new country and government. Anyway, George Mason was vital in the process of shaping this country to allow it to eventually flourish. He was, and that's part of the story that's so
2: interesting. Someone has actually gone through and counted up how many times each delegate or deputy to the Constitutional Convention spoke, which is kind of a crazy thing to do to count who spoke how many times. But George Mason was the fifth most frequent speaker at the Constitutional Convention. And there are some pretty lengthy speeches he gave. He was somebody who spoke a lot and he spoke in a way that people really listened to
1: and respected. As vital as this outspoken Virginia politician was, get this, he refused to put his name on the new constitution. You know, the document he'd labored over with a bunch of other people for months and months and months. He refused to sign the document
2: He went off instead to the tavern, a rooming house where he was staying, and he wrote this document. He took a draft of the constitution that had been printed and he flipped it over. And on the back of that draft constitution, wrote out a document he called his objections. The very first one is that there is no declaration of rights. He believed passionately in protecting individuals from government corruption. He was convinced that government and people who were in government tended towards corruption and that we needed to be protecting the rights of individuals in the face of this potential corruption. There were lots of other things in his objections too, but that's the very first thing that he put in his document. And so he took a stand and said, I'm not going to sign this document, the Constitution of the United States, that I've just spent more than three months helping craft because it's not what it should be yet. It was a really brave thing to do, maybe foolhardy. It cost him friendships and was something that was not a popular move.
1: In September of 1787, While other lawmakers gathered to sign the U.S. Constitution, George Mason just went home.
2: He started trying to convince other people to see things the way that he did. And he went home and he continued to advocate for changing the Constitution. He just didn't think that it was done
1: yet. Never done. There's that word again.
2: He had a variety of avenues available to him. He could try to defeat its ratification. He proposed that we have another constitutional convention. Many of the other delegates had a response of, oh my gosh, George, we've just spent so much time. We're not ready for months more of debate. So he tried to get elected to the Virginia Ratifying Convention, and he was unsuccessful at being elected from Fairfax County, where he lived. And that was probably in part because George Washington also lived in Fairfax County, and George Washington had been the president of the Constitutional Convention, and people had a great deal of respect for George Washington, and so they had to choose sides.
1: Choose against George Washington? You know, the George Washington. Who goes against George Washington anyway? He never loses. It's G.W.
2: Fairfax County sided with Washington in this case. But George Mason was persistent.
1: Again, never done. Are you sensing a theme? I'm sensing a theme. <laughs>
2: He stood for election in Stafford County, where he also owned property, so he was eligible to run for the ratifying convention there, and he was elected. So he went to the ratifying convention and was quite an active speaker there. He and Patrick Henry became a pretty dynamic pair, advocating for defeating the Constitution because there were so many things that they thought needed to be fixed.
1: Yes, my moment, Patrick Henry. You know, give me liberty or give me death. I feel like you guys need a reminder from my Patrick Henry remix in season three. (laughs)
2: Let it come! (laughs) Forbid it, almighty God!
1: Let it come, forbid it! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, forbid it, Almighty God! Let no. it come! Give me liberty, or give me death. Okay, to understand this running joke. If you are new to how we got here, you have to go back and listen to Season 3, Episode 6. For everyone else, I'm not sorry. Back to the new U.S. Constitution. One of the more popular opinions among early Americans was Mason's Declaration of Rights that he championed in Virginia. And we
2: see across the new states, people starting to pick up this refrain that we needed to have a Declaration of Rights, or we needed to have a Bill of Rights. We see that the longer we go into the ratifying process, that the later states were more and more interested in making some changes to the Constitution. They were listening to the kinds of things that George Mason was saying about the fixes that we needed to make to the Constitution. Eventually, of course, enough people listened. There was a, a real groundswell of support for a Declaration of Rights, or what we now know as a Bill of Rights, the constitution was ratified with the understanding that one of the first tasks of the new congress would be to propose some amendments to the constitution that would form a bill of rights
1: this idea never done never complete may have you thinking that george mason was a bit of a perfectionist
2: perfectionist maybe he was certainly tenacious When he got a hold of an idea he just didn't let go of it he was one of those people who in some ways was probably kind of annoying to be around because he just dug his heels in when he thought something was right he put all of his intellect and his resources behind it and that's what he did in this case i don't think it's unreasonable to say that without george mason we likely wouldn't have a bill of
1: rights Remember, the Bill of Rights is something that is still being referred to today. Free speech, the right to bear arms, speedy trial, all born out of Mason's original document. Virginia's Declaration of Rights, which Virginian James Madison would draw from when introducing the Federal Bill of Rights, we now know today. Mason also authored another important document that would influence Americans for generations to come.
2: also was the primary author of the Virginia State Constitution. And because Virginia was the first colony to form a new government as a state, its form of government served as a model for all of the subsequent state governments. And so George Mason is the author of both the Virginia Declaration of Rights and the Constitution, was the person whose ideas ended up in subsequent state constitutions. When we look even at Alaska and Hawaii's constitutions, we see language from George Mason in their constitutions. George Mason's ideas end up in the state constitutions of just about every single state in the Union.
1: For everything Mason deserves to be celebrated for, the hypocrisy of fighting for freedom from Britain while enslaving others was on full display at Gunston Hall.
2: George Mason was not perfect, and he did not live up to his own ideals. The biggest thing is slavery. George Mason said beautiful things about all men being created inherently free and equal, and yet he owned other people. He had the opportunity to free people he owned, and he didn't take it. And so we see in George Mason a kind of microcosm of the conflict that started our country. On the one hand, advocating for and fighting for their own freedom, but denying that freedom to other people. And in fact, George Mason had the leisure time to think about politics and to be involved in politics and the wealth that enabled him to be involved in politics in part because he wasn't
1: paying the people who did the work on his plantation. We see this in several of the revolutionary architects we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Washington owned slaves at Mount Vernon, Jefferson at Monticello. And they understood
2: that there was a contradiction there. George Mason himself talked about slavery as being an evil and a slow poison He said that he thought that it was going to be a calamity for our country. They understood that they had a real problem, but
1: somehow they didn't have it within themselves to to deal with it. As society changes in the United States today, we find ourselves taking a second look at these founding fathers like Mason, just now coming to terms with the ugly side of American history.
2: I think he's frustrating because we want him to be the unblemished hero. He left us with documents that are so important to us and such beautiful language, and yet he behaved in some ways that we
1: find inexplicable. So much to unpack there, but it's important to talk about what was known at that time, how they reacted, and how they did nothing too. And this brings us to October 7th, 1792, the day George Mason took his final breath. George Mason was just
2: in his mid-60s at that point, and he had been ill for much of his adult life with gout. And the gout had gotten to be really bad in the year or so before he died. And when we talk about gout, he certainly suffered from the kind of gout that we think of, still affects people's feet. But he also had what people in the 18th century called gout of the stomach. And so imagine just having terrible, terrible, terrible pains in one's stomach. And he was in so much pain for much of the end of his life. And in the last few months before he died, he had horrible episodes of gout of the stomach, and he also had fevers and he had a cough. So he was just in declining health and was very, very uncomfortable. He talked about it all the time. And it was one of the reasons that he wasn't more active in political life. He, in fact, was offered the opportunity to become a United States Senator within the last couple of years of his life, and he turned down that opportunity. In part, because he wasn't really excited about the government, remember, he still wanted to change the constitution, but largely we think because he just didn't
1: feel good, he was in in very poor health. Rebecca says one of the most frustrating things about studying George Mason's life is that so few of his own personal writings have survived the harrowing tests of disaster through time.
2: So we have a lot of letters that George Mason wrote to other people. And so those letters were saved in other people's collections of papers. And we have only a few papers that George Mason kept himself. We think the reason that there's so little that remains from George Mason's collection of papers is that there were two fires. His son and his grandson both had house fires. And so we think that George Mason's papers likely burned up in one of those fires. We don't know what happened to them. So we don't have diaries. We don't have letters from other family members talking about what was happening. We don't have a lot of detail. We have a teeny, tiny bit of information that indicates that in the month before George Mason died, that the whole household had illness, that there were a lot of fevers, that family members and people who were enslaved all were laid low with the fever. And in fact, George Mason says in one of his letters, There were so many people who were enslaved, who worked in the house, who were laid low with a fever, that he was worried there wouldn't be anyone left to care for everyone else. The whole household
1: was sick. Much like the death of George Washington, which we told you about in season two, even though Mason's body was failing him, that was not the case for his mind. His mind
2: kept going until almost the very end. Thomas Jefferson, in fact, visited George Mason just a few days before Mason died. And he reported later, Jefferson that is, that Mason had so much to say about politics and about the government that Jefferson had to stop Mason from talking too much and from tiring himself out too much. Mason was continuing to, to have all sorts of ideas about government. In fact, he had an idea about how we should structure the federal debt. He came up with a whole plan to act as an alternative to Alexander Hamilton's idea about taking care of the federal debt. And there was George Mason, right in the thick of things, right until the very end of his life.
1: Never done until October 7th, 1792. The exact details of his death remain unclear, But it's assumed that George Mason died in the bedroom on the ground floor of Gunston Hall. I don't imagine it was
2: a very pleasant death.
1: Throughout his life, George Mason refused to be done politically. But unlike some, he was able to see much of his life's work come to fruition.
2: Just before George Mason died, we got the Bill of Rights. And so within George Mason's lifetime, he was able to see some success in terms of the end of that project that he had been advocating for so strenuously. Now, he still thought that we should have some more amendments to the Constitution. He continued to feel it was not done. Never done he was very pleased that the Bill of Rights was passed. And in some ways, I think he died just as our country was truly getting started. Our Constitution was well established. We had our Bill of Rights. Congress was functioning, and George Washington had set up his cabinet. We had a functioning federal government. And it was just at that transition point that we lost George Mason.
1: October 7th, 1792. A transition point is never the end of a story, but a mere shift in the narrative, a change from the norm. The narrative of the United States during George Mason's time has been through several transition points in the 228 years since his death. And it can be argued we are in the midst of one as a nation right now. Perhaps as George Mason would see it, the work in making a better America never done. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. To digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly. nanny nanny boo boo, you can't stop me. I got that Patrick Henry masterpiece remix in another episode. (laughs) Okay, I'm done, thanks guys. And a special thank you to our guest this week. First timer on our podcast, Rebecca Martin, the Director of Education at George Mason's Gunston Hall, and Dr. Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. She's stuck with us now through four seasons. Shout out to the NBC12 archives this episode. What that really means, everyone, is me and Colton digging through old, obsolete tapes. Yes, tapes. Fun times. Next week on episode two, a monumental day for women. This will be the first time a monument of its type, representing many
0: different centuries of women's contributions to our great commonwealth, will ever have been put on capital grounds of any of the 50 state capitals in the United States of America.
1: Plus the birth of a woman who would go on to lead a union spy ring in the heart of the confederate capital. Most people who were born and raised in Richmond
0: just took Slavery as a, a way of life. She had a different perspective on it.
1: And I hope to be on a future episode, maybe season four. I can be on. This is season four. What? <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad you got renewed. <laughs> Meteorologist Andrew Frieden takes us inside one of the top five worst hurricanes to cross Virginia. It really. Quick moving storm, but a pretty devastating storm. But it also produced the strongest wind gusts in Richmond that we've ever recorded in modern times from a landfalling tropical system. And we have a little true crime murder mystery for you.
0: People do not just vanish. Someone has seen something and someone took our daughter.
1: The day a Virginia Tech student goes missing from a Metallica concert in Charlottesville.
0: We will leave no stone unturned. That's what you do when you're looking for the filth and slime that festers in the dark. That's next week on
1: Episode 2. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at nbc 12com We'll be back in your life next Monday.